last week, uh, Paul talked to you about the problem of religion. And today I want to talk to you about the problem of irreligion. And I want to use the text that Jennifer just read to us, but particularly I want to focus on two words that are used twice in this passage, and they are the words grace and truth. First in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, uh, verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The, the teaching here is that in Jesus Christ, God gave us a full disclosure of these two things, his grace and his truth. Some have thought that the contrast in this passage is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, like the Old Testament was characterized by law, demand, God's expectations, and the New Testament is characterized by grace, God's kindness, and his mercy. But that is not the point of the passage. The Old Testament reveals both law and grace, and the New Testament reveals both law and grace. But the point of the passage is, is really shown uh, when you connect verse 16 and 17, when he says, uh, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, or grace in place of grace. And, and the idea is that in the Old Testament, the grace that reveals, re, was revealed was tremendous, and God's people were invited to experience it. But in Christ, the grace that was revealed then eclipses that which went before. It's, it shines with greater purity and greater clarity than anything that ever went before. In fact, what we have in Christ is a full revelation of what God wants us to know, both his grace and his truth upheld. And the gospel, I want you to see this morning, the gospel or the Christian message is meant to help us balance those two things that are fully revealed in Christ, grace and truth. Now, religion and irreligion are both alternate ways of not finding God. They, they allow a person, in two different ways, to go around God, to avoid their need for God. And uh, that's what we want to think about. The religious person, as Paul said last week, can do this by being moral and religious. It's seen when a person says, I think God will accept me when I die because I've kept the Ten Commandments. That was the answer, by the way, I gave to my wife at age 18 when she first shared the gospel with me. I've kept the Ten Commandments. After all, I argued God has told us what to do. He's given us his word in the Bible, and he says that we ought to live in this way, and I'm seeking to live in that way. And in the end, I believed as a religious person that God would accept me because I'd been good and, and moral and obedient. So what religion does, is it exalts truth. It acknowledges that God has given his word and he's told us what to do, but it denies grace. Because as long as I believe that I'm able to do what God wants me to do, then I'm able to believe that God owes me acceptance when I come into his presence. You don't really need a savior if you're doing what God wants you to do. But Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in the New Testament demonstrates to us so clearly that he did not regard religion as being adequate, that he regarded it as a way to miss God completely. 
And, and what I want to say this morning is if religion is a way of exalting truth but denying grace, in a very different way, irreligion reaches the same goal, but it takes a different road. What irreligion does is it, it exalts grace and it denies truth. And in the end, using both ways, you, you lose, you miss both grace and truth as a result. By denying truth and exalting grace, the irreligious person avoids needing Jesus as Savior, and he avoids needing God to rule over or guide his life. Now, the first thing we have to think about is what is irreligion? I, one of my sons was in town yesterday because his wife is running in the Detroit Marathon this morning, and we went out to dinner last night, and uh, he was asking me what I'm speaking about, and I told him about irreligion, and, you know, he said, I don't even know what that word means. And I realized, oh, that's not a word that's used very commonly, and a person wouldn't necessarily grasp what it means, but it's exactly like the word irresponsible. It's just negating something. If we say responsible, we know what that means, but irresponsible is a person who's not responsible. Same with religion and irreligion. And in the dictionary, it defines irreligion as a person lacking religious feelings, beliefs, or behaviors. Feelings, beliefs, or behaviors. If you think about it just in terms of behavior, sometimes the word irreligion is used to describe a person who is just bound and determined to live some way other than what God has instructed. You might think of it as the girl who just seems to want to poke her fingers in God's eye constantly and say, I will do what I want in life. I will be immoral, dishonest, offensive. I will talk dirty, dress provocatively, be belligerent. I will live this way. But that's not always how irreligion shows itself, simply in being bad. You can think of irreligion as life without God. Life without reference to God or thought to God. That may mean, on one side, denying God's existence. We call that atheism. It may mean a person who acknowledges the existence of God but gives to God no real place in life, no real power to do anything. That also is irreligion. Or it can mean misrepresenting God. And that's the one I want to think about the most this morning. It, it can mean misrepresenting what God is like, giving to him qualities and values that he doesn't really have. Now, all forms of irreligion are the same in one sense, and that is that they all believe in moral relativism. And what I mean by that is they all believe that, that when it comes to behavior especially, all choices have equal value. There is no right or wrong. Everything is relative to the individual and to the situation in which he or she finds himself. And this idea dominates the modern world. You can't get through a day in modern-day America without facing this belief because it's built into our entire culture. We face it in the news. We face it when we go to work, in the neighborhood, at school. In every different place we go, we face this idea because it's found every time someone says to us, no one has the right to tell me how to live. Um, people should choose how to live the way they want to live without being told how to live by someone else, particularly by some religion 
or a religious person. In other words, the basic belief of moral relativism is that all lifestyle choices are up to the individual. All choices about how I use my body, how I relate to people and to life, how I behave in life are up to the individual and are therefore to be accepted within society. Now, what I want to show you is that irreligion is an attempt to exalt grace at the expense of truth, and in the end, it misses both. Now, what do I mean by that? Irreligion exalts grace, and it denies truth. Well, I want to reason it out with you by simply using two statements that are both like claims that would be made by an irreligious person. Here's the first one. This is what moral relativism says, essentially. It says, because there is no external standard by which I could be judged, I don't need Jesus to save me. Because there is no external standard by which I could ever be judged, I don't need a savior, particularly. I don't need Jesus to save me. Now, relativists are usually not religious, or they prefer what we would call liberal religion. They are often, at least outwardly, very tolerant and happy, at least more than religious people who tend to be very intolerant, uptight, and demanding. They believe that everyone must determine right and wrong for himself. They're not convinced that God is just and that God must punish sinners. Usually, when they talk about God, they seem to view him as an extension of their own tolerance and acceptance. They may talk about God's love. In fact, sometimes they do it a lot. But since they do not really believe that people are sinners, God's love costs him nothing. It's simply an extension of his welcoming nature. Now, if you take an atheist, an atheist, a person who denies the existence of God, he has no need to explain what God feels or thinks. And obviously, if there is no God, there can be no moral will that a God might have that he could tell us about. And so they don't really have to deal with this directly. There aren't any basic rules for life, says the atheist, because there's no being outside of us that could impose any basic rules for life, except for those that we come up on our own, with on our own, as we move through life. Now, the fact is a relatively small number of people will, will claim to be atheists. That will probably always be true. They're a vocal number of people, but it's going to be relatively small. The vast majority of people are going to retain some kind of belief in God, but what moral relativism does is it says, I believe in God, but the moral beliefs about God or that some people think that God holds uh, are not acceptable. And I want to use an example from contemporary issues. And the example is homosexuality and uh, homosexual marriage or gay marriage. And I'm not using this example because I like to pick on homosexuals or because I even want to talk about it, simply because this is the one you're hearing about every single day of the week right at the present time, right? I mean, you can't turn on the television without hearing something about it, something that's going on or something that someone said. So let's, let's think about this. A couple weeks ago, I, I heard an interview on the radio as I was driving, and the um, person being interviewed was the head of an organization that is promoting the cause of gay marriage. And this is what he said. Anyone who says that God is against 
homosexuality or that he doesn't condone gay marriage is not a Christian. And he went on to say, that is not a legitimate Christian position. Now, let's note two things about that statement. Anyone who says that God is against homosexuality or that he doesn't condone gay marriage is not a Christian. Well, first, in the snippet of the interview that we were given on the radio, the person didn't identify his own religious conviction, so I didn't know whether he was speaking as someone who confesses to be a Christian or not. And yet he was making a claim to know very definitively who is in and who is out of the Christian movement, at least outwardly. That position, he said, is not a Christian. A person who holds it is not a Christian. But the second thing I want to note about what he said is that what he's claiming is, at least historically, completely inaccurate. God expresses disapproval of the homosexual lifestyle and doesn't condemn, condone homosexuality in the Bible. That's clearly stated in a number of places in the Bible. And what's more, it's been written into the historic confessions of the Christian churches uh, for 2,000 years. They all, the complete confessions, whether they're Catholic or, or Protestant, they all contain statements that say that God disapproves of the homosexual lifestyle. And it's been believed by generations of Christians. And, and so what the person is saying is the Bible, the confessions of faith, what God is purported to believe, the beliefs of generations of Christians, they're all wrong. God does not think that way. He doesn't think the way in which the Bible represents, in which Christians have been represented in the past. God doesn't think that way. And the reason I know God doesn't think that way is that because God is loving, he couldn't think that way. Now, by the way, that's circular reasoning. He doesn't think that way because he couldn't think that way. But that's essentially the idea. We know, says the moral relativist, that God is gracious and accepting. If God is gracious and accepting, and we know that he loves everyone, that, by its very nature, means that obviously he could not disapprove of someone's lifestyle, especially a lifestyle that isn't hurting anyone else. Now, unfortunately, what's being displayed in that whole idea is what gay people often experience in America. They often experience only one of two things. They're either being bashed by religious people who are using the verses of the Bible to condemn them, or they're being accepted by moral relativists. There is no in-between, and this person could not even conceive that there could be a different response. And what I want to show you later is that there is a response. The gospel response is quite different from either of those things. But the point is that this person is willing to change the truth that has been revealed. He denies the Bible. He denies any gender distinctions that might be based on the Bible. He denies the historic beliefs of millions of people. He denies them as being true by exalting God's grace. God's grace means his acceptance of everyone regardless of their behavior. And if that is true, he exalts grace, but he denies the truth. And the end result of a person who reasons that way, and this reasoning is very widespread, is that you don't need a savior. This person has uh, avoided the need for a savior. After all, grace doesn't mean anything 
if there is no truth. If there is no truth, then grace is just God's acceptance of everyone, regardless of his or her beliefs or feelings or behavior. If God would never condemn anyone, then grace is just God's welcoming nature, and it's simply the fact that, after all, we're not so bad to begin with. So in the end, you lose both grace and truth. You see, if there's no external standard by which I could ever be judged, if the only standard is what I set up for myself as I move through life, then I could never need a savior. Jesus, they think, opens his arms wide. They picture him that way. He embraces the whole world. And in fact, he does embrace it, they say, because he accepts everyone. And there's no need to repent because there is no sin for which a person would need to repent. But um, in the end, it leads a person to neither grace nor truth. That's the first claim. The second claim is this, similar to the first, but it says, because I determine right and wrong for myself, I am in control of my life, and therefore, I don't need Jesus to rule me. Because I determine right and wrong for myself, I am in control of my life, and I don't need God to control me. Now, you see, Jesus came to offer himself to us as both Savior and Lord. That's evident in the Gospels. He came saying, I want to forgive you, and saying, I want to rule over your life. I want to guide you in life. If the moral relativist is capable of thinking and living in such a way that he avoids needing Jesus to forgive him, and he doesn't really have to face that, he also, by his viewpoint, avoids needing Jesus to rule over his life because he stays in control of his own life by determining his own behavior himself. Now, here's how it works. If there is no external standard by which I could ever be judged, then I have to determine right and wrong for myself. That's the perspective in the modern world. As we go through life, we must determine our own behavior. And, and whatever we determine, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, is and must be acceptable to other people in society. And it's the not wanting to hurt anyone else that I want to focus on. There is a standard of behavior to a moral relativist. It's not that anything goes. What he claims is that people have to make their choices, and all legitimate choices do not harm another person. So any choice that I could make about relating to people, about my personal behavior, um, that endangers the safety or the health or the happiness of another person, that's an illegitimate choice to make. They wouldn't say it's right to murder another person. Of course, that's harm of another person. But anything that endangers another person, that's not right. Any other choice, as long as it doesn't harm another person, is a legitimate choice to make. Now, that's a standard that sounds good. The problem is it's difficult to apply for a reason I'll explain. The Bible also contains something close to this standard for behavior, although it's stated in a positive way. It's the golden rule. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, do to others as you would have others do to you. Now, that's stated positively. Do good things for others, just like you would like other people to do good things for you. The principle obviously holds if you state it negatively. And that is, don't 
harm others in the same way that you don't want others to harm you. Both would hold true. The thing is, the Bible, while it commends that, it doesn't make that the only standard of making any decision in life. It's not the only revelation we have from Jesus. It's not the only thing he ever said. It's just one sentence. It's a very important one. But the reason it doesn't make that the only or even the most important point for making any decision is because by itself, it doesn't define what the good is. Without some knowledge of what good is, you can't really make a decision whether you're doing the good that another person, you want another person to do to you. It's a, a vague definition that sometimes you'd have an easy uh, reason to understand it, and other times it would be very difficult to understand. And the same thing's true of this standard, as long as it doesn't harm another person. There must be some way to understand what does it genuinely mean in every circumstance, in any circumstance, to harm another person. Consider raising a child. As a child grows up, she moves towards independence. That is how life is made. She moves from childhood and dependence to a point where she becomes an independent, fully functioning and responsible human being. But the desire for independence and the demand for independence often moves faster in life than the ability to be independent. You understand what I mean? Many times children want to do things and to be things that they're not yet ready to do and to be. And if you haven't raised teenagers, maybe you haven't experienced that, but that's the way life is put together. So you can think of a 15-year-old a girl, and she wants independence. She wants the freedom to live in a certain way. She wants to be with whom she wants to be. She wants to do what she wants to do, and she wants to go where she wants to go. The fact is, she will have that. That's what adulthood is about. But both responsibility, go with, responsibility goes along with the opportunity and the freedom that adulthood offers. The ability to support oneself and to deal with the problems that one faces goes along with it. So she's not ready at age 15 to accept all of the responsibilities and the demands that go along with making the choices that she wants to make. And so what happens is her parents hold her back, if they're wise. They hold her back from making all of those choices. And in a, a normal family, that will cause some tension. That may be a very polite, simple way of saying it, but it will cause some tension in a normal family because it's only the strength of the relationship that has been built for the previous 15 years that could ever weather the storms. If a person desperately wanting to become independent but not quite being ready to do that. Now, if her parents um, act wisely, they will keep her from doing that and, and most of the time, she'll submit angrily. But she may come to that point where she looks back and says, I'm so glad that I waited on some of those things. And uh, at the time, when she's 15, does it feel good? No, it does not feel good. What she feels is stifled. She feels controlled. She feels held back. She feels suffocated by her parents. She feels harmed. But the parents, at least in their intentions and in their best moments, the parents only want what's best for their daughter. And in addition, there's one more factor in this. At age 15, she does not have the resources to internally make all of the decisions that she wants to make. 
She needs something or someone who is bigger and older and more authoritative who speaks from outside her experience to give her some information that she needs because her internal standard is not yet informed by enough experience in life to know how to handle the consequences of behavior. And what the moral relativist is saying is I decide what is right and wrong for myself. But the difficulty with that viewpoint is no one has all the information he or she needs inside themselves to make all the complex decisions that life will demand in order to get through life in a way that doesn't harm other people, that in fact helps them. The difficulty is that we each need someone who is bigger and older and more authoritative than us because we don't have the capacity inside ourselves to come up with the standards, the decisions that we need to make in order to decide how to behave in any given situation. And that source, of course, is God and his word that he's given to us in scripture. But as long as I can convince myself, if I'm a moral relativist, that I determine my own life, that I alone am responsible for life, as long as I can maintain that idea, I don't need God to rule over me. I don't need a moral law or any external standard that would tell me how I ought to live. The relativist believes he's in control of his life, so he doesn't need what Jesus offers. Jesus made a gracious invitation in the Gospels. Come to me, he said, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But those words fall on a deaf ear when it comes to a moral relativist because he has become unconscious, unconscious to any need for God to guide him in life. He believes that he is capable of making those decisions, of knowing what it means to behave in such a way that he is happy and that no one else is brought to harm. And so Jesus' offer is ignored. And you see, that's the problem with irreligion. That's why it is life without God. It's always based on the denial of a belief in any lasting standard for life. It involves a commitment to making up the rules for myself, and it uses a standard, do no harm to others, that is too vague and doesn't allow for enough definition of what it would actually mean to not harm another person. So it avoids God in two different ways. The religious person can avoid needing Jesus as Savior because he's already doing what he wants to do, and that has to be right. And he can avoid needing Jesus as Lord because he's already doing what he wants to do, and that must be right because he's in control of his life. He doesn't need Jesus to be in control, and so the gracious invitation of the gospel is completely bypassed. He avoids even needing to face it. And that's why I would say religion and irreligion both end up in the same place. They take two different routes, but they get there in the end. Religion says, I'm doing what God wants, so I don't need Jesus to save me or to rule over me. Irreligion says, there is no external standard by which I could ever be judged. I'm doing what I want, and so I don't need Jesus to save me or to rule over me. Religion exalts truth and denies grace. 
and thus it misses both. Irreligion exalts grace and denies truth and thus misses both. And what I want you to notice is that there's a third way, and that is what the gospel is. That's what Jesus came for. Jesus didn't come to preach a message that would help irreligious people become religious. He didn't preach a message that said, you've been bad, start being good. That's not the point of the gospel. Here's what the gospel does. It balances both grace and truth perfectly in the person and the message and the work of Jesus Christ. It says that God, your holy creator, has given to you a standard for life. He's given it to you clearly in his word, the Bible. In the Ten Commandments and the teachings of Jesus and other moral teachings of the Bible, God communicates to you how he wants you to live. This is the truth that the moralist, the religious person, believes in. It's also the truth that the irreligious person, the moral relativist, denies. But there's one more truth, according to Jesus, that the moralist, the religious person, doesn't want to hear. That is, not only is it true that God has given to you the standard of life that he desires for you to live, but God also tells you that you cannot do it. You cannot keep his law. You are incapable of doing what God really expects. It's like a commentator once wrote this such a beautiful sentence. He, he said, um, the law of God is holy and righteous and good, but it cannot hold in the mud bottom of the human heart. Like an anchor thrown out, the law is the perfect embodiment of what God demands from the creatures that he created upright. But it is incapable of holding in the human heart. The problem is in the heart. It's not with the law. You cannot keep the law. And so the truth of the gospel is your sinful condition is far worse than you have ever imagined. In fact, it's, it's worse than the most moral religious person could ever imagine. It tells us that you could never save yourself, no matter how sincere, no matter how much obedience you gave, because you will fall short of everything that God intends for you to do and to be and to think. But in his sinless life, Jesus kept the law in your place. He fulfilled everything that God has given in his word, every standard. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he did that also in your place. And he took on himself the penalty of the law, that is the eternal death demanded by our breaking of the law. God, who could rightly condemn you for breaking his law, has chosen by his grace to give himself to you, for you, in the person of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. So what the gospel tells us is we are more. We are so sinful that we could only be saved by grace. To accept the gospel means to stop seeking to justify yourself and to rely only on Jesus to forgive us and to bring us into relationship with God. What it means to continue to walk down the path of the gospel as a Christian means to continually face that same thing. In other words, we grow in the same way that we enter in to the Christian life. 
we grow as we continue to see how our self-righteousness keeps us from God, how we seek to live because of sin in a way that avoids a need for Jesus as Savior and avoids any need for him to rule over our lives, but it doesn't work and God brings it to us. And as we see those things and we repent of them, we enter more deeply into it and we turn more from our stubborn determination to live as we want and to prove how good we are to God. And we find that it's all wrapped up in what Jesus did for us. So the Christian is the person who realizes that his relationship with God is a faith miracle. Nothing but the initiation of God could have intervened in his life to turn him from self-righteousness and self-salvation and self-determination to look to Jesus Christ and him alone. Nothing except God. So the Christian starts to look at all of life differently. If he is a recipient of grace, he begins to see that every aspect of life has to be re-understood, re-thought through in light of this truth. I am worse than I ever imagined, and I am more cherished and loved by God than I could have ever dreamed. Those two things are true at once. So let's consider a response to a homosexual in our society. The gay person is used to two responses in society. He's either condemned by the moralist, the religious person, for breaking God's law, or he's commended and accepted by the irreligious person for doing what he wants. These two options society gives, but they're not the only option. The gospel is a different response to that. It would involve loving but not approving it, it would require accepting the homosexual as a fellow sinner, but not approving of the form that his sin takes. It would require pointing a person in another direction than simply approval or disapproval, and that is the Christian position. It's like the Christian position is a way in between and completely different from these two ways that take you away from God, religion or irreligion. The Christian sees the homosexual as a fellow human being who is at one and the same time both infinitely exalted because he's made in the image of God and infinitely flawed because he's a sinner. That's what a human being is. Infinitely flawed and infinitely exalted, precious and flawed at the same time. And so the Christian knows that before he trusted Christ, both his best deeds in life his sincere obedience of God, and his worst sins in life, they were both ways of avoiding Jesus as Savior and Lord. He knows that the gospel is not a call for bad people to become good. It's not a call for irreligious people to become religious. It's a call to come to God through Jesus and find both grace and truth. And the Christian is a person who is repenting of his self-righteousness. He sees it as salvation, as a way of God transforming the whole person, the way he thinks and feels and believes, and that that experience goes on as he lives a life of worship and fellowship among the people of God. So the Christian doesn't relate to the homosexual as a moral superior. How could you be morally superior to another sinner? But he relates to the homosexual as a forgiven sinner whose self-righteousness took a different form in life, but was still self-righteousness. His determination, he realizes as a Christian, to live his life his way, whether it was by doing good things or doing bad things, his determination was a way of avoiding 
the need for forgiveness and the need for God's rule. But the Christian is a person who has been electrified and transformed by the gospel. Though he is worse than he ever imagined, he is also cherished and loved by God in a way greater than he could have ever dreamed. It demanded that God himself step down and out of eternity into the time, into time in the person of Jesus Christ, live a sinless life and die to pay the penalty for his sin. So the Christian invites the homosexual to experience the same experience of grace and truth. And that experience may, in fact it will, involve pain, it will involve loss, it will involve self-denial because it does that for all Christians. But it also involves the experience of eternal acceptance and empowerment to live for God. And, and it becomes the experience of the verse that we read this morning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we thank you that you are a God of infinite majesty, and yet you long to draw us to yourself that we might experience both your holiness and your grace. That happens only as we begin to see that all of our lives have in so many ways been a desperate attempt to avoid having to face our real need and avoid having to face what it is you truly offer in your Son, forgiveness of sins and direction in life. Help us to see that that is the case and give to us in place of self-righteousness, a sense of utter dependence on your word and your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.